0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a
1: podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Welcome back to Therapist Uncensored. You are at episode 57, if you can believe it. Uh, So we're very happy that we've been able to keep this going. And today's topic is very relevant for most of us today, having to do with, you know, our relationship to the cyber world and the World Wide Web and how it can impact us in unexpected ways. So don't worry, it's not a bunch of doom and gloom and discussion full of beware of the dangers of the internet. Instead, my colleague, Dr. Ann Kelly, and guest Catherine Nibbs really go into specific recommendations about how to be more proactive and engaging with your kids, your friends, yourself, around this complex cyber world. Catherine Nibbs is a psychotherapist and author based in the UK and she brings us her expertise on how the world of the internet and social media can have a huge and sometimes traumatic impact on us. She coined the phrase cyber trauma and is author of the book, The Darker Side of the Internet for Children and Young People. And one quick sentence before we jump right in, and that is to go to our website, com backslash events, because we have lots of things already live there and also some new things coming out. So even if you hear this later, That's where we'll post most things that you can sign up for. There will typically be things that you can get for free, things that you can sign up for from all around, online trainings. And then we have our live conference coming up in two weeks from this recording with David Elliott on treating adult attachment. Okay, so keep us posted. Stay on our email list. uh, And uh, really, our Facebook group is the best way to just kind of see what's going on. So just like us there and follow us there, and you'll be good to go. All right, so without further ado, let's jump right in with Catherine Nibbs.
2: There is no current major literature that talks about what happens via cyberspace apart from in the safety realm and in in kind of education. And I thought, okay... I'm going to go back to the the psychotherapy literature and see what I can find. And I really struggled to do so. So I put together two words. um, Obviously, it's not trademarkable, but uh, I put together two words about the trauma that people can be on the receiving end of from cyberspace.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's something that I think anybody that has spent any length of time on the Internet, even I think... I think of the own experience of sort of accidentally putting terms in that you end up having your computer flooded with images that you didn't ask for. And we have experienced that individually, and it's obviously a horrific fear and has happened to to many of us as parents where our kids end up getting flooded into it. So I think your topic is just... Uh, it's what I was really excited to have you on because you're not just talking about... I mean, I think we will end up talking about security and what to do about it. And I think that's really going to be an important part of the podcast. But let's talk about just the idea of how it becomes trauma.
2: What I did was the issue with coming up with a, a phrase for a theory, really, is you've got to have uh, almost an academic definition. So I, I've tried to succinctly put together a definition and what i came up with was any interaction which is direct or indirect with any internet ready or electronic device that has electronic communication that results in a trauma that can be immediate retrospective and delayed because the the phenomena itself isn't always about an incident of today so i think in in the book The first thing I talk about is I left school at 16, and as far as my brain was concerned, that's where school ended, and I carried on throughout my life. And one of the things that happened was I was on Facebook one day, probably 2008, 2009, when it was just getting going. You tend to connect with old friends, and somebody shared a picture of me in secondary school, and mm-hmm. at secondary school, I didn't have a really good time. I'd oh. had an accident as a young child and it resulted in lots and lots of dentist visits, and lots and lots of dental operations. And my, my time at secondary school was really horrid. And up came this picture and I was rubber banded back to being 13, 14, 15 years of age. Yeah, the, these traumas aren't just necessarily now. They're things that have been in the past that can reappear. And for a lot of the young children that I work with, we're talking about sexual abuse imagery which could come back later on in life and for adolescents some of the behaviors they engage in when they then go for a job are are the things that people will retrospectively look for on the internet.
0: And then of course the future you're making decisions so so let's go back for a moment to to that experience I appreciate you sharing that and I, I can almost all of a sudden completely relate to what you're saying and that is you've moved on from your adolescent self. And for for many people, secondary or for us, middle school is, a frankly, a really, really difficult period in our lives. And then we grow and we mature mature and and we might reflect back at ourselves going, oh, my gosh, you know, that was so hard. But we do it at our own time, our own pace, and when we're kind of ready. And for you, all of a sudden this image hits you and it brought back this feeling. It sounds like a feeling of shame and a feeling of kind of, Completely transversing you back to a moment in time that you weren't ready for and you didn't ask for, so it just sort of happened to you. And what you're saying is, it sounds like it just flooded you with the experience of your prior self.
2: Um, it did. So I think that the phrase that I've always kind of reflected on is, is Brené Brown talks about the shaming experiences that most of us remember are the ones from from school. And mm. and I I sat and and quite often I do this thing where I go parent, person, human being. And then psychotherapist, and I I think about things in two different ways. So, I sat there for a moment, thought, "Wow, I wasn't ready for that." Right. Moment, and then thought, "Wow, who is ready for this?" You know. uh, And I think that's what I've been watching is the the evolution of behaviours that. And this is where I think the literature's got a deficit because when Freud existed and Winnicott and Bowlby began writing about attachment, this didn't exist. We didn't have this this facility and this medium for your life to be dragged up in in this particular way because photographs were something that your parents kept usually in folders or little Mm -hmm. boxes and they were at the house. So the likelihood of a number of people seeing those photographs was limited to who visited that house and who the parents showed the pictures to. That makes a lot of sense.
0: And now all of your current friends on Facebook, who've known you as a professional, known you as an adult, all of a sudden have this image. And of course, good friends are going to integrate that maybe with some kind, humor. But what you're saying is all of a sudden you've kind of lost, you didn't have that choice. It just appeared. And the experience of your current self... And at times, I don't know if that experience felt traumatic to you, and we're talking about trauma, but it certainly did really deeply impact you sort of in this old shameful way. And, and, and it sounds like you experienced it in a very traumatic nature and that it stayed with you for a while.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what, what I'm talking about is I, I was bullied and, and that's what came back to the forefront. Um, however, during the research that I've been doing, I come across some images which are absolutely terrifying, horrifying. And again, thinking about the word choice. So, in 2014, I was doing an interview with somebody and I said, I'm really angry at the moment because Facebook had updated its settings and what happened was on the iphone or the ipad it was automatically playing videos and i I was Mm -hmm. furious about this because again this was about my consent and my my choice in what i wanted to watch and how i wanted to watch things was being overridden by a platform that hadn't asked me if this is what i wanted to do and the way that you had to change that was to go into your settings so it's almost as if the big companies change default settings for people. And it's those default settings that usually give us a choice about what we do, how we engage in things. And that's kind of how I'm relating it to trauma. So trauma is about we don't have a choice in what, what happens to us. It's imposed on us. It, it, it happens without our consent. And that's what we tend to struggle with in overwhelm.
0: And often without expectation. It's a surprise. It's something that traumatically happens we're unprepared for yeah, and that we don't feel we have a lot of agency.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously, not everything is traumatic. I think when I do talk about this subject, it makes it sound like the internet is a very, very desolate place and, and macabre. But actually, this is about the occasions when it does happen. And what I find traumatic is obviously not what somebody else would find traumatic. Certainly. And and we're moving into a place where when I'm talking with adolescents, both in therapy with my children, with children that I've worked with in the schools, we're also becoming, I think the word that gets banded around in the media, as well as psychotherapy is desensitized. And I think actually we're building a tolerance, a tolerance to things that we might not necessarily have ever seen without the internet. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like... I think one of my phrases when I'm teaching is, we used to have access to our village, which consisted of 150 people. The average uh, number of users on the internet at the moment is four and a half billion. Wow. Which is a phenomenal village.
0: Yeah. Yeah, our village is quite changed and who can actually have an effect on us and who we affect. I imagine the person pitting those pictures may not have all, I don't know, maybe they did mean to have that effect. They might have been. It may be a, a recent bullying. It may be we're going to come back and, or that it was an unintended effect and somebody has put something up and it's had a quite a, uh, an impact on you. So when you mentioned those images coming back and we were talking about as traumatic, you also mentioned that you were bullied as as an adolescent so that really highlights that experience of what you're talking about of the re-traumatizing experience of being kind of catapulted back into that experience as a child and like we were speaking about with trauma unexpectedly without your choice unintentionally, and and uh, i can see how that really inspired some of your work that must have been really really difficult
2: yeah, there was a moment where not only did I, I see the image and, and obviously it brought back all of the struggles that you have as an adolescent, but it also brought back the feelings around what people had said, the kind of teasing that had occurred. Mm-hmm. And then what happened is I, I sat with that for a few moments and had to kind of regulate myself and go, okay, this isn't this is re-happening now, but that was a really interesting moment. and. If I choose to get my school photographs out, I'm already prepared because my it's my brain has got ready that I'm going to look at my school photographs. For example, mm. if I was showing them my children, that there was a bit of preparation that would occur. But obviously in this occasion, there were pictures where yeah, sometimes sometimes they do bring about a bit of amusement, but quite a lot of the time I think school is a really difficult place for a lot of young adolescents and in terms of what's happening in today's age and the way that we we have the bullying we don't just have bullying in real life in the playground or the yard it occurs online as well in lots and lots of different ways and it's that trauma that bullying that that whether it's a small t big t you know or, or an incident that just feels really uncomfortable that's then a moment captured in time that when we move forward in time, doesn't just happen. So our, our brains time travel, don't they? They go, oh yeah, I remember when that happened. Actually, these images are those prompts for those memories. And it's, it's the reoccurring prompts that led me to come up with the point that it can be trauma that can be delayed and it can keep reappearing and then it can become something that's from your past as well as what's happening in the present.
0: And oftentimes we don't think about it, especially as adolescents, uh, when we're on the social media, just on ourselves as adolescents, and we're posting images of ourselves and kids are posting images of other kids. And, you know, I think it might be a good jump to talk about cyberbullying because that certainly is an aspect of anybody that has been around adolescents know, can feel the the trauma that that happens. A video image, I mean, if, for any of us, if you catch us at a certain moment in a video clip, we are all, all going to look a bit ridiculous. And yet mm-hmm. the ability to do a video of somebody at school and then post it for the humor of the of the masses that's taken on a whole nother level than being teased in the hall and what you're talking about is it's taken on not a level of feeling it in a global sense it's going to be there and likely in perpetuity that it can be a re-traumatizing events as you get older to remember that experience instead of kind of integrating it and moving on
2: yeah, yeah absolutely so on a paper that I published around cyberbullying was to kind of take the literature that exists at the moment and have a look at what, what cyberbullying actually is. And what I did find is there was lots and lots of definitions, so it might be e-harassment, cyberstalking. And what I've done is I've reframed that cyberbullying is actually, again, it's a phenomena. There isn't one particular type. And for me, the the medium in which you're bullied can also include real life incidences as well as things that happen online but also in contrast to a lot of the bullying definitions that exist it can be a one-time event and And the reason I say that is because there have been children in my therapy practice that one image was altered um, so the, the one that mm. I tend to talk about is the young girl whose image was altered and she was made to look like a, a cartoon pig and she was absolutely horrified by this and, and said, you know, I feel intruded upon. I feel like I've been made a mockery of. I've been humiliated. And the, the image was taken down. But for her, the, the lasting feelings carried on in the same way that it does for a child who's repeatedly bully, bullied. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm seeing that actually these events can be one-time occurrences, And also, we've got different ways that children can be excluded from groups. Um, In this country, we call them squads, uh, the little groups. They they tend to use the phrase squad. And in the group chats, children can be excluded, ignored. And it has a bigger impact for some of these children than it does in the real world, because, again, it's in a medium where everybody can see it. And Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a term. So I think to try and explain this for your listeners... When I use the term everyone, I'm not using a grandiose statement. I'm using a term term that children and adolescents use, but actually we're talking a reality. If something is on the internet, there is the possibility for those 4.5 billion people currently registered to use the internet to see that particular piece of information. the, The potential is actually there.
0: Well, and if you think about it from an adolescent brain perspective, they already have the belief that everybody's looking, that, that their brain is telling them that they are exquisitely watched and everybody knows. And so to amplify that to a place of more reality where it actually really is happening, that is quite difficult for the adolescent brain to to get their arms around And I I really understand what you're saying, too, about the it's not just being harassed or being made fun of. It's also being excluded. And Mm -hmm. there's one aspect of, you know, back when there would be parties you might not be invited to, but you might not have heard about it or you heard about it, but you kind of sort of let it go and you move on. And now with the Internet, and I see that with adolescents a lot where they recognize they're not invited and it's actually kind of a tool for exclusion exclusion inclusion where then pictures are posted while at the party and so the feelings of being excluded are so much more intense is that is that something you're seeing in your practice
2: yeah yeah absolutely so um one of the terms that i i can't remember if it's in my book or in one of my papers or i just talk about it but there's a there's a term called kicking and this actually occurs on um computer games where for example I don't know, eight, eight or ten children from the school have decided that they're going to play on this particular game and they're going to have a party. And what can happen is you can have secret chats with other players and what might happen is the succinct bullying that happens underneath, underneath the parapet, if you like, where one oh, person yeah. say, let's, let's kick so-and-so. And then that person's ejected from the game. And obviously, in, in terms of how the brain processes this kind of information, it feels exactly the same as being physically kicked. It really, mm-hmm. really hurts, and, and for some of these children, they're they're struggling to understand how these things are happening. You know, and and quite often it'll be laughed off. Oh well, it was an internet internet connection, or and it happens in group chats, and it's it's really really subtle. Some of this stuff mm-hmm. through to the direct bullying, where it's it's exposing children so that there's words like doxing, which is where you take somebody's name, address, details or personal details about their house, their family, and you then put that out into the public domain, which is a really, really risky behavior. And obviously, Mm -hmm. when we get to being an adolescent, we engage in risky behavior. So some of this is seen as there's differences in how teenagers speak about this in in terms of lols and lels. And so they have their own kind of language about what level of humor this is. But the impact can be absolutely long-lasting in terms of whether that piece of information was recorded, whether it was photographed, whether there's a screenshot, and everything that can be uploaded can be downloaded and re-uploaded.
0: Oh, that's so true. And what you've mentioned too is that our adolescent brains – are pre-wired to take risk, to really try to to push the limits. And it feels like the internet gives kids this opportunity in a way to expand even beyond what they even probably recognize that they have the capabilities of doing and then to realize the long term effects. And so one of the one of the hopes I think for the listeners out there is like, oh my gosh, what do we do about this? I mean, is it just recognizing all the different ways that we ourselves or our kids can be negatively impacted, It's. I think the education really helps because it may be the subtle ways that your kid comes to talk to you about being kicked off of a game and you might dismiss it as, oh, mm-hmm. get over it, just go do your homework. And you might not really recognize the subtle impact that it would feel different if they said I was playing baseball and everybody said that I couldn't play anymore. Get out of here. You know, like that, we would have more empathy, more compassion and understanding. And so I think trying to help the listeners understand that we can't control all this, but understanding it could really help us connect to our kids and educate them about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really a big fan of, um, and I wish it existed a lot more than it does currently, but I'm, I'm really a big fan of the kind of empathy teaching. I think Richard Davidson does a lot of this with the younger children. And I think if we come in early and talk about empathy, compassion, consent, mm-hmm. and, and we do that with the younger generations, actually they will grow up to be less reactive. So that, so that, a lot of the behaviours that exist on the internet at the moment are tapping into you know, the kind of stimulus response and there's a lot of reactions happening rather than the, the taking a moment, taking a breath and then responding rather than reacting. So I think that there's something to be said about how, how this medium has allowed much more increased, faster communications, reactive times and it's almost where these phrases keyboard warrior comes from. You know, somebody sees something that they're upset by and before you know it, you've engaged in behaviors that would be classed as cyberbullying or trolling or harassing people because mm-hmm. we're, we're being stimulated by this and it is tapping into our fight-flight response.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned trolling. Could you tell us about what, what is trolling?
2: Uh, well, there's, there's a few definitions. And again, this is one of the issues with the internet and how we describe behaviors. But trolling would be a persistent let's call it bullying or presence on somebody else's social media page. So for example, Mm -hmm. you could be consistently liking somebody's post. Now, that could be considered as trolling and an and intrusion upon somebody's social media profile. It could be where every time somebody posts something, you make a critical comment. It could be that you then take that post, you adapt it, you change it, and you then post it somewhere else and create discord on the internet. And, and this is one of the issues we've got at the moment. There are too many definitions for behaviors, and we can't, we can't separate them. So mm-hmm. it, it's difficult to say exactly what trolling is, but it, it comes from an original word to mean to, uh, for trawling to follow, um, to follow like the fishermen did. So it's consistently following somebody in what one of the children described to me as a really creepy way, calf. You know, and, and I think, wow. well, actually, if that was happening in real life, that would be really creepy.
0: I see what you're saying. So obviously, because I think of people following and liking as a compliment and as something that means that you have attention and connection. But what you're saying is to trolley somebody is is to give the feeling that you're tracking them or following them in an unhealthy way, a little obsessed, or even to create mayhem in their lives. And so I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting. So that's a whole nother aspect that, that, thank you. I had not thought about the fact that our kids are probably exposed to that kind of thing where it could feel like you've lost a sense of privacy and a sense of exposure. Yeah,
2: yeah. 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 and and for some of the, I do tend to see it generally when adolescents and couples have fallen out with each other mm. or they're having a spat or something. So so this is um, another thing that I found that's been quite an increase And I do, I do kind of take everything back to kind of attachment styles, but there's a lot of bickering and arguing between adolescents Mm -hmm. about who's liking whose posts on Instagram and where they're from around the world. You know, why do you always like that picture of her? And why do you always click on his profile? And who are you talking to secretly? Because this is the medium that we've now provided is there's a lot of possibilities for secrecy and not feeling secure with your partner, with your yeah it's really tapping into attachment styles,
0: oh, I could completely see that as as you're speaking. I can just think about the the level of insecurity and preoccupation that we are generating in an adolescence, or I shouldn't say we that just really the internet and this constant exposure to who likes whom, who's going it would easily create even in a sense of a secure child, a sense of preoccupation of being left behind if you're not keeping up with it. So funny, I think of it with my daughter. uh, She was showing me a picture one time and I took her phone and was holding it and my thumb almost touched it. And I've never seen such panic. She grabbed the phone out of my hand because had I touched it, I would have liked it. And it was a picture of a boy. And The effect of liking that picture would have been traumatic to her in the soft sense of the word. But I had never, she just panicked that I was a bad, and I had no idea if I would have said, and I thought about it now, you know, I could understand that. But those subtle things and how impactful that one little move would have made for her. And you're talking about it on so many different levels that it hadn't even crossed my mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what we are talking here is about subtle behaviors that get missed. And this is why I bring everything back to attachment. So at the moment I'm writing my second book and I'm really bringing everything back to attachment because what I am seeing are subtle behaviors that quite often... The other person, now that might be a parent, it might be a partner, misses in mm-hmm. the tiny interactions that happen both when you're holding the phone. So I, I tend to refer to it as it's a medium and a tool. So it's a tool for connecting and having interpersonal relationships, but it's also a medium. And this is where I think we've got into the difficulties where we use words of being addicted and attached to the phone because actually we, we've started to use psychotherapy terminology and psychopathology in everyday language and it means very different things and I'm trying to take it back to say if you look at attachment behaviors you're looking at somebody trying to have a relationship and that might mean that they want to do that gradually securely and Mm -hmm. for you and that example that you've just given that would have intervened in that process for your daughter and and Mm -hmm. yeah it it automatically brings up that fight flight you know I need to protect myself in this moment Mm -hmm. and Yeah, I have witnessed parents that have turned up and children that have turned up with scratches and cuts on themselves where they've actually been physically fighting over the phone and who's having it and who's not.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. And if if you don't recognize, I think one of the things about as a parent educating yourself to what the potential of the effects of all of the programs that they're on, if you are uneducated about it and you aren't aware you might intrude on something that actually really is a huge deal for your child. And you could easily sort of dismiss it, I guess, be dismissive of, Oh, don't be ridiculous. Put that down.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's where taking the phone away from a child is being used as a punitive measure. And I think because a lot of the education that exists at the moment is around safeguarding and e-safety and looking after yourself online and having what they call netiquette, The subtleties of the relationship that the person is engaged in is is being missed and overlooked and I think that's where I'm coming from is that actually this is what children are doing they're engaging in relationships very rarely do we have the problematic behavior in inverted commas of addiction in the same way that we might have drug addiction or substance abuse I do see that the behavior looks like addiction But when you ask a child what the motivating factors are, you know, why why are you doing that? Well, because my friends are online. Well, because this is the only way I can talk to them. And and for children with learning difficulties, this is a a way that they can increase their social skills because doing it in the real world might be too dysregulating. They might find eye contact too, too imposing. And this is a way that they can communicate at their own pace. But if a child is on their computer X number of hours per day, we're kind of saying, Well, that's because they're addicted. And I'm saying, no, it's not. It's because there's an overlap of the stimulating behavior of the device, but also the relationship that a child engages in. And I don't think we can separate the two. And I think that's that's kind of my position on this at the moment.
0: That means it's confusing. It is so confusing as as a parent. And I've definitely been guilty of that. I've been definitely guilty of looking at one of my kids and saying, you are addicted to that thing. Put it down. Mm -hmm. And there's the loose term of the word addiction, of course, but it is a little confusing because what you're saying, and I hardly believe in that, that there is a lot of good in the internet. There's a lot of good in the social connections that they're making. They could tap friends that they would never walk up to. It's school. They can create a sense of networking. I've seen a Saturday afternoon around my house turn into a lovely event at a park within 25 minutes because they're able to say, "Hey, let's meet." You grab this. So there is so much positive social connection in it, and we do mainly focus on social, you know, on security and how not to be abused on the internet. So I like talking about the positive effects, but. There is the other end, and that is where individuals we know are forgetting to even learn to maintain eye contact and have eye contact with their own friends. I I think about the time where I'm sitting at a wine bar, having a nice glass of wine with a few of my friends, and we're enjoying ourselves, and we looked over to the right. And forgive listeners, I think I might have used this example before, but there was a group of, I I would say, 20-year-olds, and every single one of them was on their phone. Not one of them, and they were at a social setting, so that wasn't an avenue of bringing them together. It was also an avenue of how they stay connected. And so it is confusing. Some of that is positive. There's a positive aspect to it, but how do you know when it's gone too far, and how do you know how to support kids to use those in a healthy way, not punishing them completely by isolating them, but also helping them maintain a more healthy relationship to it?
2: Can you give us all those answers there, Kath? <laughs> I will try. I think what I generally tend to say to parents is, A, speak, speak with your child. Um, it's because, I mean, I am, hold hands up, I am a therapist who uh, totally engages in my moments of um, total disconnection. And there was a time a couple of years ago when I was writing my first book, I was sat on my iPad or laptop, and I looked up, one of my children was on the computer, the other child was on a games console and none of us had spoken for an hour. And I just shut my laptop lid and I said, stop. Everybody turn everything off. And, and of course, you get into this, well, I'm in the middle of a game. And I, I said, I think we need to do a little bit of reconnecting. And one of the things we did was talked about how difficult it is when you're, to coin the word of my child, engrossed in a game, that actually how difficult it is to disengage from that. So I sure. tend to talk to parents about what I call the spaghetti test. So I say, we cook spaghetti with a particular recipe. For example, you cook for 12 minutes if you want it al dente and up to 13, 14 minutes. Computer games don't work like that. So you have to learn what your child is doing, what platforms, how that platform works, who they're talking to, how that works, and really take an interest in your child the same way you do when they're small and they're playing something and you say, what are you doing there? Right. And you don't try to second guess what they're doing. So I generally say to people, if a child brings you a painting, do you guess what they've drawn or do you ask them? And -hmm. there's something subtle about when you engage the child, they're quite happy to say, this is what I'm doing. This is how it works. My friends are really important. And children really like to educate us. And Mm -hmm. I'm well aware that lots of parents say, but the children are more tech savvy than me. So my response generally to that is, so get tech savvy yourself. That it, makes so much sense. This is not going away. And we have to learn, almost, almost as a child with autism, the family then learns how to sit with the child with autism. This is, the, this is the same. This is a child with a medium that they are now using, and we need to learn about that medium. Mm-hmm. And it can seem pretty frightening. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm pressing. Does that mean that everybody can see it? And I, I've, I've learned more about the internet from my children and children in practice than I have done by myself. Well, they want to teach
0: you. I mean, they, they may be eye rolling you and laughing at the, at the time that they're teaching you how to use it. But they really do want to teach you, for the most part, the difference between... Instagram and Snapchat, and as they roll, and the minute you get used to one, they're moving on to the other. But what you're saying is so valuable. It's like we need to actually really educate ourselves so that we understand the importance to them, because if what's important to them, because it's foreign to us, we just dismiss it. Coming back from an attachment perspective, we're just negating something that has a high value to them, and if we're scoffing at it and the only thing we see about it is that it's an invasion, an invasion it really does create a disconnect in our relationships.
2: <laughs> I think the biggest disconnect I've seen Anne is, is usually around computer games. So whether mm-hmm. it's on a PlayStation, Xbox, or the, the PC, understanding things called save points mm-hmm. and kind of the terminology that exists. So I've said to parents, you know, it's, it's really unfair to walk up and just switch the computer off. Ask your child how the game works. So you learn, for example, some of the games might be adventure-based. And Mm -hmm. each time they complete a task, they get to a save point. And it's when they're at the save point, they can save their game. And that's when you see the sigh of relief in the child and the shoulders go back and they go, okay, right, now I can turn it off. Now I can engage with you. Yeah, My
0: body's gone more relaxed. I feel more safe. Rather than We've cut you off right in the middle of something that was completely important to you. That's It's been stimulating and you're just about to accomplish something.
2: Yeah. And the same for something called XP points, which stands for experience points. You're, if you're engaging in a game where you're competing with your peers, you know whether you want to or not, the fact that we have XP points on these consoles that is broadcasted to everybody else uh-huh, is, uh-huh. is what the children are requiring to say hey this is how good I am at this game and again that's where parents have walked in and just turned off a game and it's meant that this child has then lost I don't know 200 of these points Mm -hmm. and that that then leaves them quite open to being bullied by other people about ha 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 your mum turned it off you know if the child is on a headset parents walking in and there's lots and lots of these videos on YouTube which are teasing about the the child who was on the the xbox and mum walks in and says right turn it off it's tea time and the child and the mum then engage in an argument and obviously it's recorded via the headset and that goes out and people will then keep broadcasting that as a a, and that's another version of cyberbullying
0: The people will tease them for actually having to be cut off or the argument they've had and then they could to spread that recorder huh i hadn't thought about that
2: yeah, there's, to, be, to be honest, and there are so many versions of cyberbullying that, that that's why I've said it's a phenomenon, And I do, I, we would need 50 different podcasts just to be able to cover each and every aspect of how difficult this is for children. And If we learn what they're doing, it mm-hmm. makes it much easier for us to go, OK, when you get to the save point, you will be turning it off because that's what we've agreed.
0: Right. and it's You're leading into conversations and to, to know what they're playing and if they are getting completely dysregulated because you've done something like that to sit down and say, why was that so hard for you and get a deeper understanding? And of course, I'm not at all advocating then that we're always completely acclimating to the child's needs. As sometimes the child's just going to have to turn it off. But at the same time, if there's a mutual respect and understanding, as well as I think the understanding of how... The interface with technology really is quite exposing for kids in so many other ways, like I had never even thought about the, the the friends hearing the parent coming in and reprimanding and how we approach it and how we talk and that becomes a public forum instead of just an interaction between the parent and child. And there must be countless ways that the interface between the internet and our children are affecting them.
2: Yeah, and um, this is why I look at young people and I think, wow. This is not in any of the literature. When, when we talk about what children have to cope with, so for example, concepts like death. So mm-hmm. I could go and read all around, I don't know, Kubler-Ross and say, okay, there's a couple of stages of death. Well, actually, now there's another one. And that is that your Facebook feed could continue to carry on after your death. Mm-hmm. Children believe pretty much the same as some of these games, that when you die, you can do something that's called respawn. And that means you can come back again, but in a different place. And you know, trying to explain to a five-year-old, no, that doesn't mean that. I know that happens in a computer game, but that isn't going to happen to Grandma, and she isn't going to come back. She hasn't died, and will will pop up at a later point. This is it's a permanent thing, and I, I'm I'm noticing that some of the narrative of children's understanding about death, depression, people leaving. You know, we we could move into the adoption realm and how. Children will seek their adoptive parents, adoptive parents will seek their children. It's just, it's phenomenal the, the number of issues that children have to deal with in varying contexts and obviously it affects everybody with a secure or insecure attachment style.
0: Oh, certainly. And I'm sure how you respond to it is impacted by what attachment style you're coming from. Do you come to your mm-hmm. parent and say... I've just hit on a button and all these images of of sexuality or, or, or horrifying images at times have come up and do I actually go down to my parents and express the trauma of that or do I go off and experience it by myself and you know, that how they're going to respond to the different things that happen are going to be very impactful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hugely. And, and many, many children think they will be in trouble for coming across some of this, this, uh, whether it's imagery videos, uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter what, what kind of site they've been on or, or social media, they feel like they'll be in trouble. So I've been teaching recently that actually it's about, can the child tell somebody you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent. If they can explain in school that they saw something and we talk to children in the classrooms as well, that will give them a different platform to come and speak to us about what they're experiencing. Because at the moment, this this Internet seems to come with a, yeah, it's pretty much a precept of I shouldn't be doing that because we keep talking in school about things I'm not allowed on. And my mum says I'm not allowed to stay on it for more than half an hour. and So it's coming with lots and lots of tension building moments.
0: That makes a lot of sense. It does seem to be that we approach it from a place of danger more than anything, a danger. And and even if you think about the podcast, we're focusing quite a bit because we want to educate everybody to the real dangers that are out there. But we do sort of approach the computer from a sense of alarm state. Yeah. And instead of that, this could be a very secure way of relating to the world. But it is actually a really important topic to how do you make that computer secure an enjoyable place and protect yourself from the places that if you're unaware can catch you by surprise or really negatively impact you now or in the future.
2: Yeah. I, I think because I was really interested in what my children did growing up, I've, I've got such a good open relationship that actually I get shown things I don't want to see.
0: No, <laughs> no, that's so true. Yeah.
2: My eldest, my eldest child who's in his twenties will, will say, Hey mom, mom. Yeah. I don't want to see that. <laughs> did you know this was happening? And I go, no, 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 stop. Yeah, because actually that's the kind of relationship we've had regarding the internet. So I used to say, what are you watching? Who are you talking to? What's happening there? Why do you do that? But with Mm -hmm. a curious framework, and sometimes I'd go, oh, why are you doing that? Completely flummoxed. And and obviously the tone, the tone with which we approach our children has a huge impact. You know, um, my favorite theory is the polyvagal theory. So I say to parents, it depends on what you say, how you say it, how your face looks how mm-hmm. the child reacts, what you're watching in their body language. And also, just to make my, my favorite point, in regards to the polyvagal theory, we hold our phones at approximately 30 centimeters to 40 centimeters, so whether we're on a laptop holding our phones. And that is the same distance as the infant eye gaze of mm-hmm. babies feeding when they're first born. So I really feel this this cyberspace is tapping into an innate Driving us to be connected, and I think what it does is it sometimes creates a false safety. So, for example, if a child is sitting playing a game, engrossed in the game, really feeling maybe relaxed, and the parent comes in and says, rah, 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 The child is going to have the kind of fight or flight response, and you know, it, it's trouble a brewing is usually. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So, if they're actually having Maybe they're holding the phone at that
0: point, having a really emotionally, you know, like a very secure connection with some peer and all of a sudden the parent comes in and their body goes into some startle response around it. Or even think about toddlers holding the phone and how we respond to that sometimes with give me that. And that what you're saying is that the pairing of that response could really be having all sorts of impacts that we're not even aware of right now. That makes so. Oh my God! I'm just having this image of walking into the kitchen, and my son is holding the the phone, and I immediately just rah, 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 and just the, the immediate negative impact sometimes because I I really do get frustrated with the lack of eye to eye and emotional content. You walk in and everybody's on it. So because I do really value what you said, put your phone down, so we're going to have a connection. And, and I think about the, the yelling that I immediately do with that. And then sometimes he just goes, wait, wait, wait. And he doesn't get to impact. He said, come here, let me show you something. And then all of a sudden, we're engaged in something together. Of an, And he's watching an incredibly educational video about what's happening somewhere else in the side of the world. And here I've come down, get off that phone. And, and instead, learning to go, hey, what you watching? And join him in that aspect of connecting. Now, having said that, I am also a real stickler for when people that you do you put your phone down, you look up, you say hello, and meetings and greetings are important. And I'm a little worried that we're starting cutting that out in too much respect for that internet. But I really love what you're saying. Don't just make an assumption. Really try to understand, what well, we're, we're speaking kids, but what your partner is doing with the phone, try to understand rather than just making the phone in and of itself or making the, the, the evil thing, making the connection first and the understanding about what's happening. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that's, that's been something that I've, I've witnessed. I do chuckle to myself, actually. I'm quite a voyeur of other people's behaviours when, like yourself, being out in public places. And I watch if one of the partner's phones goes bing and the other person automatically, like a little meerkat, jumps up and has a look to see who, who, who's yes. on the phone. And I think, how interesting. <laughs> like <laughs> what's going on there?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And when you start noticing the phone being hidden too much in a, in a partnership, that's not a good sign. So talk to us a little bit. Uh, we haven't tapped too much on sexting and the exposure of the pornography, et cetera. And I, I the effect we're talking about, again, I think about the permanence and how often adolescents are pressured to send images of themselves or they send images of themselves because other girls are sending images and they really want to secure the connection to to this particular boy and then afterwards recognize that now that image is out there in the world. And not just for that one moment, but the experience of I've just given something away that I no longer have control over. What are your thoughts on that?
2: To be perfectly honest, that is my PhD topic. Well, it's not just pornography, but one of the things that I've tended to veer towards over the last six months is talking to a lot of people around pornography. And we've got so this is the issue again. We've got so many different names that we've had in the last two or three years for producing sexual images. So we've had sexting, we've had youth produced images. We've had, I think one of the things that I would say is these are images that are sexualized in some way, shape or form. And that can begin with kind of underwear all the way through to nakedness and sexual organs. But it also includes a lot of the time the sexual text messages. So so that has an impact as well, kind of the words that people use that are around sex and sexuality. So in this country at the moment, we are trying to not prosecute children under the age of 18 for sending some of these images and we're trying to do it by a case-by-case basis and say, okay, so this was possibly normal adolescent behaviour in terms of what would occur in a real-life situation. So what I do know is that there is quite a large pressure on young people to send these images. Um, It's not that it's a normal or a, a social norm, but there is something around young people feel rather confused at the moment regarding whether they should ask for it, whether they should send it, if they do send it, how that image is then protected and kept private. And then we have something that we call revenge porn in this country. Now, that is applicable to adults, not children. And this is where we, we've got that fine line about when when does a child not become a child? And in terms of brain development, I'm kind of thinking anybody under the age of 25 might well be in a relationship that these images are produced coercively. Right, right. Don't send me this. There's also something about, on one hand, this has existed ever since we could take photographs. It used to be Polaroids. And then we happen to have created something that now allows us to do it in a much faster, and and it's still secret between two people. I think the issue comes with, once you have taken that image and you send it, how do you then guarantee, and again, this would kind of tap back into attachment styles, how do you then guarantee that you can trust that person? Right. They will keep that image secret, safe. And if you were to separate, fall out, divorce, that they wouldn't share that image without your permission. Mm -hmm. And quite often, I think it's, um, do we call it the talionic response? A lot of people who are in a hurt place react angrily. And this is where we get the images being shared or somebody mm-hmm. might lean over and see somebody else's phone and go, oh, who's that? You know, because that's what teenagers often do is is show each other things on their phone. And those little thumbnails can be interpreted very, very quickly because that's what our brains do. They, they, they work in images. So we can pretty much process an image on a thumbnail mm-hmm. faster than we would do if there was text messages. And, and that's where you can say, well, what's that image? Who's that of? And mm-hmm. I, I think for me... There is an increase in these images being shared, but then again, there's an increase in smartphones. So I I think what we're looking at is hyper-rational thinking from adults, uh, Mm -hmm. from adolescents, sorry, where they think it's okay to share this message. It's okay to share this picture because I'm in a relationship, we've agreed it's okay, and it's a bit risky,
0: but it's a mutual decision, and we, we we talk about that. It's a mutually agreed upon. So in all the normal ways that we would teach kids about sexuality, having a dialogue, making sure it's mutual, making sure that you have both have an agreement, they could be following all of that Yes. by sharing an image and yet not really recognize that it's not just that one moment. We might agree to have a sexual interaction with somebody in that moment because we're with them and we love them and we want that, But when we break up, we get to say, I no longer agree to letting you see me or to have private exposure to me. So that agreement has now been off. And now you no longer get to have control of that. You no longer get to be the one that says yay or nay, because now the other person has that sexual image of you.
2: Yeah. In in the UK at the moment, we're moving to a law around, um, and it's called GDPR, and I'm not going to bore your listeners with it, but basically it means looking after data when we're, we're a professional. And I, I sat thinking, we should apply this to any kind of data on any phone that could be transferred by anybody, because actually that image belongs to the person who took it or however it mm-hmm. was taken. But also... When that data, if you like, is is given to one person, they don't have the consent or right to share it with other people without your consent. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and that often is what happens. And in terms of uh, long-term effects, I think one of the behaviours that adolescents do engage in definitely is they don't consider the consequences or, again, going back to um, Dan Siegel's hyper-rational thinking, they don't really care right at this moment in time.
0: No, because they're impervious to the outcome and the, and taking the risk. And so what if somebody sees that image later? I love my body. And yes. And so educating them. And of course, they get a lot of education in the schools, but continuing to educate mm-hmm. them about the long-term effect and that. And even this person that you love deeply and you trust, you can love somebody deeply and trust them. And there actually can be generally a trustworthy person. But what you mentioned earlier is when you've gone through a hard breakup and you're feeling a great deal of loss, you're not always rational. And you then may be prone to do something that in normal circumstances, you wouldn't do. And that would be, I'm angry at you. So therefore, I'm going to create some kind of pain and not even really intentionally wanting to harm that person in the long haul could really engage in something very, very painful. Yes through that exposure.
2: Yeah, in, in terms of when I talk about the kinds of traumas, I think sexual abuse images and pornography images are the ones that seem to have the most long lasting effect mm-hmm. in, in terms of when, when I'm speaking with adolescents, you know, about what, what happened and yeah, it's really interesting that a lot of adults engage in this behavior as well, but we don't tend to talk about that. And right. it is a normal part of being in a relationship. And this is where I tend to talk about data with people, up until smartphones existed, the only way you could replay that video, if you like, was in your head. That mm-hmm. that was where the video was stored, unless obviously you used other recording devices uh, like VHS and so on. But that's how it existed, and you could actually destroy the VHS. Mm-hmm. Nobody could get hold of it. The, the issue we have now is with digital images; they mm-hmm. can be transferred and changed. And this is where a lot of the organisations are, are trying to catch hold of some of this and. We have created a little bit of a monster in terms of how the Internet allows the, the processing of this kind of information.
0: So I think your book's going to be really timely because, again, we, we aren't trying to propose that Internet uh, is and cyber is bad. It's, it, it brings us in, as, as my example with my son... Brings us into all sorts of worlds. I wouldn't be sitting here with you from Austin, Texas, and you in the UK. So it brings us so much joy, so much connection that's wonderful, and it can keep us from isolating and it help us feel more universally connected. I think what our point here, and I think you've helped our listeners here, is like to be aware of the subtle things and that it can have an effect on us now. Our past can come back. Somebody else's past could come back. If you're going to post a picture of somebody's adolescence, to think about permission-seeking, to think about that your impulsive move is actually impacting the person on the other end, and that helping ourselves and our kids understand the long-range effects all of those. And to go back to your example again, which I really appreciate you sharing about the bullying you experienced. If you are experiencing something that's come up on social media and you're having a traumatic response, that is a very legitimate response. You're not being actually at all ridiculous. You could be really re-experiencing a very deeply impactful traumatic experience from the past and to listen to it. It's a, it's it's a viable very important Dynamic that deserves attention.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I will say the one thing that I see that's the positive about the internet is, and I go with Louis Cozzolino, as he talked about the social signups. Of mm. people wandering around and being in connection with each other. And this is the cyber synapse. This is what it's it's a worldwide synaptic connection that we've all got. And that's one of the, for me, it's the most positive things. And I've had some absolutely wonderful conversations with people from Australia, America, all around the world. I could never have done that unless I got on a plane, travelled, and and here I am, able to talk to people. And gain so much more knowledge and so much more of a a human connection. And it it is an interpersonal connection, whether it's the same as being in contact in the real world. I think it's similar, the same, different. It has some positives,
0: has some negatives, and the more educated we are about both. And to bring it back to how we engage with our kids about it, to not, I think part of the message is it's not just to be focusing on the fear, the negatives. But all the aspects, including of the social connection, it must be so nice to be able to immediately form these connections and to have these, and to also be able to talk to them about the potential of the negatives and understand and empathize and help them move through it, yeah. including the effects of, like I think about the teasing. We all teased as kids. You know, we tease one another, we play jokes on one another, and it isn't always with malintent. And to be able to help educate ourselves and how to do it in a healthy way on the internet and help our kids understand that that one aspect of of sending that funny little video out teasing somebody about yelling with their parents could be funny in that moment but really could be misused
2: it often is by parents (laughs) there's something called is it sharing and parent shame it so be a role uh, yeah i do say be a role model if you don't want your children to be a bully online then don't engage in behaviors that support that from your aspect because children really do follow our, our lead.
0: Isn't that true? That's so true. You have also been part of developing apps. So how else we can help parents out there working with kids. One is to really educate, encourage dialogues, encourage understanding, but there is so much that kids are going to be exposed to that they don't even want to be exposed to sometimes because of internet trolling to our children How do we help? Do you have any recommendations of how do we help our kids work with social media in a healthier way? And how, as parents, can we be more educated and maybe even more in control of what our kids do get exposed to? Do you have any
2: suggestions? So this is, it is pretty much Parenting 101. It's about regulation. It's about, yeah, that must have been really shocking. Would you like to talk about it? I understand that it was a moment you didn't expect. I understand that maybe perhaps you shouldn't have been on that website. I understand your curiosity because this is what children do. They will type in pornography,
0: sex. I mean, back when boys could find Playboys from their father, etc. and titrate up to what they're ready to see. And now they if they type something like that into the internet, their brains are not really even looking for and aren't even ready for what they're about to get. And so at times it so outstripes what they're developmentally ready for, and that can be incredibly traumatic to a young developing mind.
2: Absolutely, so that, that's something I've covered in in my podcast recently, and I, w- I will say to give a warning before anybody does kind of listen to those podcasts, they do reveal what's out on the, uh, what is currently out on the internet. and I've done one with Gary Wilson who's over in the US. He's got a website called Your Brain on porn. And he actually looks at the adult impact, whereas I was talking to him and we're looking at the impact on adolescents and young. Yeah, it's it is shocking, but it's being able to have those conversations almost almost like you would if you walked past something in the street with your child and you didn't expect to see it. You would say, "Wow, that was quite shocking, wasn't it?" I I struggled with that, and I can understand that you must have done. And so it's all about co-regulation, and uh, but also.
0: And that this is not actually the norm and you don't see this and that's actually not what sexuality is about. And and
2: I, I think that's, that's the most helpful. We know what to do as parents. I think we're just frightened about what we think our child. Because if our child comes down and says, oh, there's this thing on the internet, will you come and have a look? I tend to go, I really don't want to because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to co-regulate my child if I'm then traumatized. Right,
0: right. That makes a lot of sense. And so I, I like what you said a minute ago too, that we want to be able to help monitor, but not over monitor. Like there are some things where parents are literally being able to see every single text that a child sends. And that would be like having your parent on a telephone call nonstop as you were growing up. And that as loving as that is that you want to protect the child, I think the famous saying is that you want to prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And so I think that's that really holds true with a computer as well. There are, though, some great programs I know that a lot of unsupervised experience on the Internet could be not helpful. And there are some apps that just literally will turn off all use of the Internet at a certain time at night. It's very difficult for many parents because schools are requiring phones, are requiring constant use of computers. So if you say, put your phone away for the night, you're like... It's almost, it's gotten to be, it's almost impossible to do that. But there are apps that allow you to sort of dictate what programs they can use and when. And that way you're not having to be the micromanager because you don't want to set yourself up as the guard and the micromanager because then you're not actually on their side and support and somebody to go to. You're their monitor, right? And you're their gatekeeper and that promotes aggression instead of connection. Yes. So, so there are some really helpful website, I mean, apps to help you be a safe monitor and, uh, and and increase your awareness and control. But we want to, I think we're both saying a cautionary tale to not come from a fear place of over monitoring to where you, you create a disconnect.
2: Yes. Yeah. And that's where I slightly joked earlier that that's what parents do in the punitive measures. So they have these apps and they can go dink. Oh, it's so true. And I just think, "Oh my goodness, I understand that the intention behind it is to be safe said, yes. but sometimes it's yeah, and children are entitled to privacy, but it's talking about what privacy is safe and what right. privacy is uncomfortable and what privacy isn't okay, and obviously mm-hmm. that's that's where we're talking about kind of grooming behaviors and exploitation and in teaching them.
0: Yeah, teaching them about the grooming behaviors that happens online and, and and educating yourself, which I think your book is going to be so helpful to educate parents into what kind of grooming behaviors happen so that you can actually educate your child about how not to go that and the signs of that rather than be the gatekeeper. Instead, you know, teaching the child rather than being the ultimate gatekeeper. And, of course, that's developmentally dependent, obviously. Yeah, yeah. it's dependent mm-hmm. Well, Kat, this has just been so wonderful. I think I could talk to you for hours and all the different knowledge you have, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming. And I think our listeners are going to really appreciate your perspective on this.
2: Yeah, thank you. I've I've had a lot of fun and, and, and I'm kind of going, now, what did I miss out? Because that will happen, my inner critic.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And we get to, the, now that we are connected to the internet, we get to come back and you can say, I've missed out on something. And
1: we can actually just put that right on in. Thank you so much for listening today. And since you're hearing this part of the episode, it means that you must have hopefully gotten something valuable out of it. If so, then we really ask you to go to your podcast player and give us just, it's usually one click. They make it really easy for you these days to give us a rating and review. And that really sends a lot of encouragement our way to keep going. So thank you again for listening. And our website is therapistsuncensored.com. All right, we have more coming at you. So we'll see you around the bin.
0: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.